Good morning. It's been a joy to kind of walk through Psalm 16 already as we have been worshiping together. If you'll permit me, I'd like to read it one more time, the whole thing through, and then pray for us. So this is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to show or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, would that you speak to us all today from the words of this psalm, your psalm. Remind us of the security and satisfaction that can only be experienced in your presence. Give us the hope that Christ has overcome sin and Satan and death. Thus we have too. And we can delight in him. God, I ask this for all of us here today. Reveal Jesus to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I just want to start this today by reading the first four words of the psalm again. I want to do this because when I turned to this psalm and read it, these four words jumped out at me. Read them again. Think about what the psalmist is saying when he writes, Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. David didn't need to say anything else to pique my interest. Preserve me, O God. He had me at hello, if you would. Preserve me, O God. Maybe you feel it too. You know, maybe you feel I'm engulfed in this quicksand of anxiety. Preserve me, O God. My credit card debt just keeps mounting and mounting. I feel the walls closing in. Preserve me, O God. If I'm being graded on my parenting this week, I got to go to summer school, right? Preserve me. Oh God. 
pain from being abandoned in my relationship, my relationship is driving me deeper and deeper into depression. Preserve me. Preserve me, O oh God. You would think the connectivity offered through social media would be a big time blessing, but every time I come off of it, all I feel is self-condemnation. Preserve me. Preserve me, oh God. I've been abused, and there's no one I can turn to. Preserve me, oh God. Write your own sentence there. David did. And David knew who to turn to when he cried out, Preserve me, oh God. David needs protection. His life just as messed up as yours is. And yet, he approaches life and God with this delicate nuance. As we read through the psalm together, what we'll see, and this is really what I want to hold out to you today, that even as he calls out, Preserve me, O God! He expresses the utmost confidence. Right? It's not a self-confidence. It's a God-confidence that comes across. Look at the next line in the psalm. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. See the security mentioned there? Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my God, and I have no good apart from you. That's the satisfaction. He's got confidence. And in this short snippet, surely we see the summation of this psalm. Your security and satisfaction are in God. That's the big idea. Your security and satisfaction are in God. Some have called the psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. An anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Because here in scripture is where God paints our every emotion in vivid color. And what I would like to do with our time here today is simply pop open the psalm and drink it. Drink it up. Join with the author and see and taste the security and satisfaction offered to us in God. So that when we come to Him, we can find it too. This week, that you might walk in it just as David did. So let's do it here as we check this out. Let's imbibe together. As we get started in Psalm 16, from the start it's kind of helpful to look at where the psalm is placed in the overall book of Psalms. If you know about the Psalms, you might know that there are five sections or five books Within the book of Psalm, Psalm 16 is in the first one of them. It's the book with the most intimate songs in it, in Psalm 16. And all of it plays off of Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, you might remember there's this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Follow the ways of the righteous, forego the ways of the wicked. And in this section, we see uh, a context that surrounds that theme. Verse 14 looked at, uh, sorry, Psalm 14, looked at what happens to fools, the fate of fools. 
Immediately before this psalm, in Psalm 15, we define what righteous character is as we read through the psalm. And immediately after this, we have a gripping depiction of what protection is in the shadow of God's wings. So Psalm 16 is kind of snuggled in between this section here, working out what it means to be righteous and experience all the blessings of God's righteousness here. If we keep just reading right through the psalm together, in verse 3, we read this. This is kind of the first direction he goes when he thinks about being preserved by God. All right. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. Now the saints here refer to the true believers in Israel. Remember, God called all of Israel as an ethnic group, as a nation, but not all of them believed. David now looks out and says, for all the ones who truly believe, those people are my delight. David's expressing what we might call derivative delight here. In that, he's looking at God's gift, his people, and he's able to delight in God through the gift. See what's happening here? He's seeking delight in God himself, but he's going to God's people to experience it. This idea points forward. Jesus picks up on it in the Gospels. Places like John 13, 34. Jesus will say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Think about that. Jesus says, you people, just as I loved you, I want you to love one another. Think about how Jesus loves people. He serves them. He affirms them. He encourages them. He delights in them. And he says to his followers, his disciples, I want you to delight to love one another. Because Jesus knows the way to experience God is through his people. So that's a question for us this morning. If you want to increase your satisfaction in God, how are you relating to the gift of his people that he has given you? In her 2016 book, Enjoy, Trillia Nubo shares this about God's gift. She writes, we enjoy because we know the gift is given by God for our enjoyment. The gift starts with God as the giver. If we believe this and see all things as his gifts to us, we're free to abandon our man-made rules and self-imposed guilt and simply enjoy. She was speaking about gifts in general, but certainly the gift of God's people to you would fall into this category. The gift is from the giver. And we are to enjoy it. Now, I realize some of you guys might be new to the church or you might not necessarily be an extrovert or someone who's energized by people. So I have some advice from another pastor. Kevin DeYoung has some advice for those of you who don't naturally gravitate to other people, but yet you want to enjoy God through people. Here's a couple pieces of practical advice. First, He writes, you can connect with ordinary people in ordinary ways. 
Loving people can require extraordinary effort, but it doesn't require extraordinary gifting. Talk to people. Get to know them. Be a good listener. God has given you wisdom. He's given you his spirit. Don't be afraid, right? So you can connect with ordinary people in ordinary ways. Secondly, he says, if you want to connect and enjoy God and people, draw out and ask for stories. Draw out and ask for stories. How did you become a Christian? What drew you to your line of work? Tell me about your kids. How did you two meet? What were the traditions around the holidays? One of the greatest gifts we can give other believers is the gift of your curiosity. God has given you people in this church for your enjoyment. We can do this through O2 groups, through community groups, more informal gatherings. This week, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, I was able to be with God's people. In little groups, that's a lot. It's not a prescription. It is a testimony, though. When I was with God's people, Sunday at a restaurant at my home, Wednesday, yesterday, more informal, I experienced God through them. God showed up, and I saw his glory in his people. That's what David is talking about here. When he says, I look out at my faithful brothers and sisters, they are my delight. It's the same idea. Let's keep reading. Notice in verse 4. He contrasts now the emotions of the unbelievers. Those who don't chase after God. Verse 4 he said, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In an explanation of fidelity and allegiance, David goes on to say, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Talking about the pagan people now. I delight in God's people, but for the ungodly, I will not participate in their sacrifices. I'm not going to go after their ungodly things. Why? Decreases my satisfaction of God. I can't have it. Now, he does use offering language here. And that reminds us that in the Old Testament, they did have a sacrificial system. They made sacrifices, and they made them to point forward to the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ. In other words, they realized they had a need for guilt to be removed. As we read forward in the Gospels, we have a scene where John the Baptist sees Jesus of Nazareth coming to him. Remember what he says? It's like, behold, there's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God has come. The sacrifice has come. The one we've all been waiting for has arrived in Jesus of Nazareth. And still later in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, John talks about this fidelity and allegiance. And he uh, has a vision. And in the vision, people have the name of God, the name of the Lamb inscribed on their foreheads. And that was a mark of fidelity, of commitment, of allegiance. David is saying to us here, if you want to be satisfied and feel secure in God through Jesus, you must be faithful, you must be committed, you must put away things that are ungodly. For David, the concepts of loyalty and intimacy with God are intertwined. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't have David's temptation. People aren't making blood sacrifices. What must I abstain from? 
It's a good question. You might ask yourself what tends to capture your heart. Is it material things? Is it your reputation? Is it being approved of? Perhaps God wants to reveal something to you today through this text that is decreasing, it's robbing, it's sucking the joy out of your relationship with God. For David, it was participating in these sacrifices. For you, it's going to be something else. Ask God to show you what that might be. As we continue through the psalm, the next couple verses, we see a really sweet blend of God's security and his satisfaction. Check it out, verse 5. David writes here, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, as often happens in the Bible, the passage you're reading is pulling from a previous passage. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it. Right? If you were an ancient uh, Hebrew scholar, you would, you would know all this stuff. If you were a contemporary of David, you would probably get it. But there's been thousands of years, a lot of cultural distance, that we have to make sure we know what he's talking about. He is using some words here from another story in the Bible, specifically the story found in Joshua 12 through 24. It's the story of the conquest where Joshua went into the promised land and took it over. These words that you see here, portion... And lot and boundary lines and inheritance, those were all concepts that came up after God's people took the promised land and they divided it up, right? So God delivered his people, gave them what he promised, and then he gave them each a portion, an inheritance. So God is uh, making a point here through David that his protection and his security can be counted on. So we see God's practical provisions here in this psalm. He's the one who supplied him. But there's something else here. On the one hand, David is saying, God will provide for you. You can trust in him. On the other hand, he's also quoting another scripture. He's quoting from Numbers 1820, and what happened in that scripture was, picture this, don't get lost in the Old Testament. What happened when Joshua conquered through the power of God the promised land, he started divvying up, okay, you can have this section, this tribe, you can have this section, this tribe. Everybody got a piece except for the priest. If you remember, God went to the priest, all the people of Aaron, even before they took it, and he said, you're not going to get anything except myself. He said, I am your portion, priest, and I am your inheritance. What's the lesson there? The lesson is sometimes God is going to provide for you physically and materially, and you'll be satisfied in him through that. But at other times, like with the priest, your circumstances are not going to be what you want. In fact, they might be the opposite of what you want. And through that, God will show you, I'm enough. He's big enough to satisfy you through good circumstances and through terrible circumstances. If Scott's testimony says anything, it says that. Very raw. If circumstances wasn't 
good and get God satisfied in. Because he is our portion. And he is our inheritance. Sometimes he withholds so the taste of his goodness will not be diluted by the things of this world. He wants you to know that he and he alone is enough. As I speak right now, uh, one of our families who work internationally, the Coker families, is headed back. They spent the summer here. Now they're headed back to Asia to continue to do their work. While they're here, as is their custom, when they come home, uh, what their company does is make them get a lot of medical checks and make sure they're all square because the medical treatment is more accessible here than where they live. So when they come home, they have to basically get a full checkup and everything has to be A-OK before they're allowed to go back to their job, right? Well, they had some complications as they were here. Everything's fine now, nothing to worry about. But while they were going through the tests, you know, it's always really dicey. And uh, it was doubly dicey for them because if you and I have a test, there's going to be a physical, biological problem but we can probably still do our job. But for them, if they have any type of minor thing going on, it's huge because they might not be able to go back to the field. right? So that's the context. And so I was talking with them before they went in for some tests and praying for them. And then they went in, and you know how it goes. The one being tested goes in, and you're all alone with the doctors, and they're doing the procedure, and the other spouse just waits out in the waiting room. And it can be a lonely time. And afterwards, I talked to... Lorraine, I was like, how did that go? It had to be, there was a moment there where you didn't know and it turned out fine, but she said, yeah. All I had during that time was some Psalms and the Word of God. And and that's where I dove in. And she testified, looking me in the eye and said, God showed up. God cared. God listened. God comforted. I didn't have an assurance of a job anymore. Didn't have an assurance of David's health. But I had God here and near, and that was enough. That's what David's trying to sing to you today through this psalm. God can satisfy. God can be your security. Apostle Paul knew about this well, right? Famously, in Philippians 3, he experienced God through Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, when Paul's writing, the Messiah had come. When David's writing, he's looking forward to it. When Paul talks about his satisfaction, he said, whatever gains to me, talking about physical reputation, status in his job, whatever gains that I've had, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of Knowing Christ. Notice the value hierarchy. Knowing Christ surpasses everything else. For whose sake I have lost all things. I can't say that. Paul could say it. I haven't lost all things. Paul did. Literally and figuratively. He lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. David and Paul could hang out, man. They both get it. And when you get to the point where there's nothing else to rely on but God, I think you'll get it too. Your security and satisfaction are to be found in Christ alone. 
back in Psalm 16. We'll look at verses, uh, still looking at verses 5 and 6. I want, I want you to note how he uses these subtle adjectives of pleasant places and beautiful inheritance. He's enjoying with satisfaction the things of God. It's going to come to a climax at the end of the psalm, but even here we have hints that he's finding God pleasant and beautiful. And then we read now in verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. It's an interesting phrase for someone to say, I bless God. You may hear that sometimes and think, that's a weird phrase. I thought God, who is all-sufficient, all-powerful, he's the one who does the blessing. Why is David saying, I bless the Lord? Well, it's because the ancient Hebrews had no qualms with acting on the internal impetus, the deepest desire to joyfully just heap things on God. Doesn't matter if it's theologically skewed. Of course, you can't give God anything more than he already has. He's completely satisfied. That's not the point. Hebrews would walk around saying, ah, so grateful. I bless you, God. I give you, I give you everything. That, that's what he's saying here as he's blessing God. Look at the last part of that verse. I bless the God who what? He gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me, one commentator said it this way here about this verse. He said, there's nothing facile or superficial in the divine guidance depicted here. I like this phrase. On God's side, it's counsel rather than coercion. On man's side, it's the kind of heart searching that will keep you awake at night, that will drive away sleep. It's the idea of a relationship. One is counseling. One is seeking in the night. Sometimes there's nothing more satisfying than knowing you can sit down with someone and they'll listen to you. Maybe someone older or wiser or smarter or is in your field. You want to sit down with them and know that they'll just listen and give you a little bit of advice. There's a reason if you go in Raleigh for a 45-minute therapy session, you might pay $200. It's called market demand. It means that people are willing to pay for counsel. Why? Because it comforts you. It comforts you. David knew it. He exalts God as the great counselor. And I can't help but think when I hear that counselor language of John 4. And the promise that Jesus made. Jesus was on his way out. He'd done his life work. John 4, 14, sorry, John 14, he's talking about where he's headed. And he reminds his people, when I go, I'm going to leave the, the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And what will a good counselor do? He will bring to your remembrance all that Jesus has said to you. Peace, I live with you. That's what peace is. Knowing you have a counselor here and he's going to help you remember all who Jesus is. All of his promises to you. All of his presence to you. God, by his spirit, can do that 
for you. My worst times are when I forget Jesus. He's not walking away from me. I, I walk away from him. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Come back. The Counselor Holy Spirit helps you remember all who Jesus is. You can have peace because God is with you as a great counselor. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, we see the correlation between God's presence and our security, our satisfaction. Notice the flow of thought here. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now our passage is a little bit forward looking. He's turning the page a little bit. He's saying, because God is at my right hand or near me, because God is near me, David knows he will be protected now and also in the future. Okay, because God is near. He's at my right hand. I'll be protected now. But as I look forward to the uncertainty, the, the scary part of life, the future, I don't know what it holds. I do know one thing. God's with me. Now look at the logical order that flows from that. Verse 9, therefore, my heart's glad and my whole being rejoices. Now here's the order that struck me. God is at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Or God is near. I am secure. Therefore, I can rejoice. See how that flows? God is near me. I feel secure. So it's okay to rejoice. My heart is warmed. Presence yields safety and joy. It's like those chemistry experiments I used to do in school. You, you put a little something here and something here, and then a new thing. You cook it, you add heat, or you add a reagent or something. A reaction happens, and you have a yield. Something else comes out here. If David were a chemist, he would say to you, presence equals, it yields security and joy. I'm going to try to give a visual picture of this. I'm going to try to play a video here. We'll see if we can get it to work. Uh, I'm not going to have the sound up. Hopefully just the video pictures will come up. And Okay, you've seen these things before, right? These are those videos where a soldier comes home and they surprise their kid at school, right? I, I watched these things. The first time I watched them, I'm like, oh, man, they're surprising the kid. This will be fun. But that, that, that face is joy, all right? It's not a surprise face. Watch this one. There's the surprise. There's the surprise. There's the surprise. Oh, oh my goodness, I'm still surprised. And then it, that's joy. Looks like she's crying, but it's tears of joy, right? I cried when I watched this. You can cry if you want. Presence. It's the hug that does it. It's the presence. That's where the joy comes from. Last one. I love this one because she's going in in a ball game right in the middle of it. Kid misses the shot. Oh, she got him. That's the surprise. And then there's, there is a joy that's so overwhelming. He's crying. Presence equals Joy. That's enough. That's good. I love that picture. When you come to God, other things fade away. Basketball game is not so important. 
And the presence of God surprises you and shows up. That's what David's trying to tell you. That's what God wants you to know today. Presence equals joy. Okay, so let's apply this. What can I do today to remember God is with me? God in Christ by his spirit is with me. What do I need today? Is it a walk? 15-minute alone time where the kids are not here and I'm alone? 15 minutes with the baby. Maybe you need that to know that God is with you. Think on a promise of God. Do a fast. Do what you need to do to remind yourself that God is near. Oppositely, think on this. Where do you tend to forget God is near? What patterns have you seen? Where in your life do you regularly forget? Dad's here. I just need to hug him. I can be swallowed up in the hug of a soldier. My divine warrior has accomplished his purpose for me in Jesus Christ. What does that yield? Satisfaction. Security. Now verse 9. The psalm, if possible, takes an even more serious turn. Because he begins to meditate on the subject of his own death. And the death of another. Read with me verse 9. David writes, my whole being rejoices. My flesh. He's talking about his body there. He's not spiritualizing. My, my body also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. For the Hebrews, Sheol was the, the realm of the dead. And you're not getting out of there unless God rescues you. You'll not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption there means decay. Physical, natural decay that a body will go through if you're dead. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now he begins to worship God by saying that even death cannot stop God's power to satisfy his people and to keep them secure. Pastor John Piper says here that that's the main point of the psalm. God will bring you, body and soul, through life and death to full and everlasting pleasure. But... How do we know that God can conquer our most daunting foe, death? How can we be certain? What proof do we have that God can conquer death? Well, we, we have to remember that every Old Testament spark burns into a New Testament flame. In other words, we've got to land Psalm 16 in the Jesus airport, so to speak. And we can do this fairly easily because two places in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, two different preachers use this text as a part of their sermon. So we can get the input of the apostles on this sermon. So I, I'm going to throw up here, and not literally, I am going to put on the screen Acts chapter 2. A portion of Peter's sermon, as we, as we wonder up to Pete, what he's doing is he's making the argument. 
that this historical person, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, was actually the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews had waited for and waited for. So he's arguing that Jesus of Nazareth is actually the coming one, the the deliverer, the Christ, because nobody was buying it. Aside from a, a, a scant few, people were rejecting him, and Peter would have none of it, so he preached this sermon. Listen to what he said. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. It's no accident. And foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus of Nazareth. Now he's going to quote our psalm today, verses 8 through 11, loosely from Psalm 16. And then he explains the psalm from David's perspective. A little bit challenging here, but we're going to stick with it. Listen to what Peter says about what we're reading today. He said, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb's right there. His tomb's here to this day. So imagine what Peter just did. He just read this psalm in which David said, I will not be corrupted. I'll defeat death. And Peter is saying, hey, look, David died. All right? His tomb's right there. Check it out. David is dead. And nobody is arguing against that. Right? So the quandary is, how could David say, I'll never die? And yet be dead. That's what Peter's dealing with in this text, right? Was David wrong? Not so fast, says Peter. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, but David was a prophet and David knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of David's descendants on his throne. So when David was writing, seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. At the climax of his argument, he said, God has raised Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of it. Therefore, Jesus of Nazareth must be the Messiah. Because what David was doing was speaking from a broader perspective that included his own satisfaction and security in God, but it was rooted in the future resurrection of the Messiah. So there we have it. When David was writing, we don't know that he had everything figured out, but he knew some things. He knew at least three things. First, he knew he was going to die. Second, he knew that God would preserve him. And thirdly, he knew that a promised coming deliverer would come as his own descendant and save him and rescue him. And so he prophetically spoke of the Messiah's resurrection. And this resurrection would be his deliverance and it is ours as well. David had to realize something greater than myself has to rescue me. And he looked to God for it. 
I read this week about a tragedy that happened in Washington in the uh, Central Cascades Mountain uh, not too long ago. There was four experienced mountain climbers climbing a mountain, and one of them was on a narrow path, and a uh, 61-year-old lady, she just slipped. And when she slipped, she fell, and she was in great peril and distress, and she eventually died. But her three companions were up there with her, and there was a moment that they realized we can't save her. And so they called out. They needed that they need they needed to know that if we're gonna survive this tragic situation, someone from Spokane's gonna to have to get in a helicopter and fly over and rescue us because we cannot deliver ourselves. The three hikers were saved after they called out. And a chopper came in and rescued him. And that's the picture that David has here for you this morning. If you want to be secure, your security abides in a deliverer outside yourself. Peter said that deliverer is Jesus from Nazareth, worthy of our worship. Death wouldn't be defeated. Eternal bliss would not be possible if Jesus would not have died and taken your place on the cross, taking the wrath of God and sealing the deal with his own resurrection. The Bible says we deserve condemnation. Jesus took it. We deserve death. Jesus delivered life. David gets all of this. Fantastic thing about Jesus, as it's been said, Death swallowed Jesus, but he did not digest. Meaning, Jesus experienced death, but he would not stay there. And David knows we'll experience death, but we will not stay there because of the power offered in Jesus Christ. And that's at the very root of his satisfaction. And that's here for us today to grab onto. Only Christ is worthy. Only he is able because in his perfect life and his death, his resurrection, he accomplished what only he could. And that is the deliverance of you and the entire reformation of the cosmos. You're a part of a giant saving plan, much bigger, but certainly including our own individual victory in Jesus. And so that's the call of the text today. It's a come to Jesus song. Come to him, be satisfied. Come to him, be secure. Come to him and he will not fail. You'll find in him pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. God, we do come to Jesus this morning through your word. Oh, how we need to be reminded of his deliverance of his satisfaction therein, of his security. This week I pray, I beg, I plead with you, you would satisfy us, your people, in Christ. He's enough. Make him enough. Give him as our portion, as our lot, as our inheritance. And let us be satisfied this week and forevermore in your great gift to us in Jesus. By your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to run now to the Lord's Supper, a place where we meet.
spiritually Christ at this table. And we have a chance to remember his death and his coming return, his coming victory. So I invite you now, if you're a believer, to take the table with us whenever you're ready. We have tables set up in the back, two here. And the idea is you come and you taste and you see that the Lord is good. Take the bread. Take the cup. And whenever you're ready, bring it back to your seat. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is yours to watch and ask God, satisfy me. Why would you not want to be satisfied by the greatest being in the universe? If you're not a follower of Jesus, use this time not to take the table, but just call out to him and pray to God. Let's now go to the Lord's Supper.